following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Castellanos, and I have been a member at CLF for a little over 10 years now, and this morning I have the great privilege to share God's Word with you. And uh, yeah, a couple things. Thank you for praying for our, our elders and their wives. Uh, everybody was healthy and uh, all got a chance to go on their annual retreat, so thank you for keeping them in your prayers. And uh, the retreat was a great success, so thank you again for praying for them. I would encourage you, if you think about them this or today, uh, to pray for them as they wrap up the final things and then as they make their way back into town. So again, thank you for praying for them uh, this week. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, go with me to the book of James. <clears throat> We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 this morning, taking a quick break from our normal series just for this morning. Um, as you get to James, let me start by wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. This Thursday is uh, officially when the holiday season starts, except for Costco and Starbucks when the holidays began, like back in September. Uh, now, if your calendars look anything like my family's calendar, the next four to six weeks are going to be packed, busy with holiday celebrations, with friends and with family get-togethers. Now for some, this is the best time of the year. For others, these gatherings are dreaded and avoided when possible. But what is true for both of these groups is that over the next few weeks, because of the busyness and the stress of the season, because we are human, because we are flawed, because we sin, and because of past history and baggage, over the next few weeks, there are going to be lots of potential for family feuds and for relational tension and conflict. Now, there is a lot that could be said about this topic, but what I want to focus on and what I want to challenge us with this morning is this. How will we use our words over the next four to six weeks? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so as we go into the holidays, and as we go into these gatherings, will you and will I be a person who speaks truth and life and encouragement, or will you and will I be a person who is speaking death and criticism and judgment? Will our words bring peace and wisdom and perspective and honor and grace, or will we use our words as weapons to tear down and to hurt and to kill and to destroy? So will our words be helpful or will our words be hurtful? And so this morning we come to the book of James. I have three points for my sermon this morning. Maturity in verses 1 and 2. This is all in your bulletin or in the back of your bulletin. Power in verses 3 through 8. And inconsistency in verses 9 through 12. So if you can, please stand with me as we read 
our text, and then we will pray. This is the reading of God's Word. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray that you would speak to your people this morning. I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth, that your spirit would help us to see Christ, that your spirit would help us to see wonderful things in your word. Pray that you would do the work that only you can do, God, to convict, to encourage, to uh, to bring about life and transformation, to help us to grow into maturity and into the likeness of Christ. Do that work this morning. Draw your people to yourself, God. And again, as, as the word is preached, may the gospel go forth in power, and may you be exalted and glorified. In Jesus' good name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, have any of you ever spent any time thinking about the classic nursery rhymes? One of them that we all know is rock by baby on the treetop. Now, I'm confident that in all the parenting books I've ever read, there was never a suggestion to get kids to sleep by putting them on the treetops. Another one is ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And I know you're singing it right now in your brain. Well, that is a song about the bubonic plague that killed millions of people that we teach kids to sing while they're dancing around. Who came up with these lyrics? Hey, gather the kids together. Let's all sing about the plague. But maybe the most ridiculous nursery rhyme that we hear is one that we don't think is so ridiculous. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, James is going to tell us this morning that that is the most ridiculous thing we could ever say. Nothing 
could be further from the truth according to James because few things in our lives do more damage than our words. They are our very own personal weapons of mass destruction. And considering that according to most statistics, that that women speak about 20,000 words per day and that men speak about 7,000 words per day, facts that we'll consider at a different time, but considering that those are the facts, what we have are lots of opportunities every single day to detonate this personal weapon of mass destruction. Let me tell you a quick story as we start. When my oldest, who is now 13, was six, and I had have his permission to tell you the story, the family was running late to go to soccer practice, and my son couldn't find his cleats. And so my wife found this extra pair, and she said, well, just put these on. And my son didn't want that pair. If you know anything about soccer, here are three things you need to know. You have especially if you're a striker, a forward. You've got to have good hair. You've got to have a good pair of cleats. And third comes your skill. I mean, that's just how it is. Good hair, good cleats, then your skill. And my son knew this because I've been teaching him well. And uh, anyways, he couldn't find the cleats he wanted. And my wife was trying to get out the door, just put these on. And so what happened is he just threw this major fit. Immediately just flipped the switch and he just got upset. He wanted a specific pair of shoes and mom was trying to get out the door. She didn't want to be late. And so this became a battle of the wills and it escalated and it escalated and it escalated until he got to the height and said, I don't want to be a part of this family anymore. And you could hear the record scratch. You know, everything stopped. And my wife said, get in the car. So he got in the car and drove to the soccer field where I was waiting for them because I was wrapping up a practice with UBC. And uh, I walked over to the car, uh, got the cliff notes of what had happened. And I said to my son, buddy, you're not going to go to practice today. You're going to get in my car. We're going to go figure this out. Uh, Mom, you go and I don't know, take a moment or whatever. So he uh, got in my car, and I could tell my wife was hurt. I mean, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, even if your son didn't mean what he said, I mean, that stuff's hurtful. So I could see that my wife had been crying, and that was, you know, it just hurt her feelings. And so I, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, how am I going to make this a teachable moment? So my son gets in the car, and I'm, I get in the car, and we're both quiet, and I start driving. So we are driving around Roseburg, and I drove towards downtown for some reason, and I saw the courthouse, and I had this idea. And so I pulled right into the courthouse, and I parked, and I said, okay, but we're here. And what I'm about to say, I'm not recommending this as good parenting, okay? (laughs) So, So take this for what it is. I pulled right into the courthouse, and I said, okay, but we're here. Let's get out. And my son was super confused. And uh, he said to me, what are we doing here, Dad? And I said, well, we're going to go find the judge. And you said that you didn't want to be part of our family anymore, so I'm going to go help you make that happen. And so I know that I scarred him for life, but... <laughs> but, 
But he said, he said, started getting some tears in his eyes, and he said, but I didn't mean it. And I said, oh, you didn't mean that. Okay, we'll get back in the car. So off we go. And uh, I made a quick pit stop at a store, and then we came to the church, uh, to the office, to my old office that is now Pastor Dave Quilla's office. And um, we walked in here, and I, uh, out of a bag, I pulled out two things, a, a paper plate and uh, some toothpaste. And I said, here's what I want you to do, but I want you to take this toothpaste. I want you to empty the whole thing out onto the plate. So here's my kid doing what I'm asking to do. And then I said, okay, now that you're done, I want you to, all the stuff that is on this plate, I want you to take it back and shove it right back into the tube. And he tried, unsuccessfully. And after a few moments, he said, Dad, this is impossible. And I said, exactly. And it is the same way with our words. Once our words leave our mouths, we can't ever take them back. And so remember this, son, our words matter more than you can possibly imagine. How many of you guys have ever had a moment like that where you said something and you wish immediately that you wouldn't have said that? And you want to take it back because you cause pain. I mean, we've all been there. And so, because we've all been there, I would say that this message is urgent for us to hear. Now, as we dive right into our text, here is the context. At the end of chapter 2 of James, James lays out the main point for his letter. And the main point of James is this. True, authentic, genuine faith will lead to a life of obedience. Now from chapter 3 to the end of his letter, James will consider several areas of his readers' lives where obedience was necessary. And the issues he is going to address seem to have been struggles for the people uh, that he was writing to. In chapter 1, James introduced all the themes that he's going to unpack for the rest of the letter. And if you were to flip back to chapter 1, verse 26, he says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and is not able to bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. And so back in chapter 3, James circles back to that statement and he unfolds what he means for 12 verses. And here is the main idea for our sermon this morning. Here's the big idea. God teaches us in this passage that our words matter more than we can possibly imagine. Our words matter more than we can possibly imagine. So, let's look at point number one, maturity, in verses one and two. James begins with this, and if you've been around the church, you've heard this verse for sure. Verse 1 says this, Not many of you should become teachers. And so what is James up to right off the bat? Is this simply this extended warning for those who preach and teach God's Word? Well, no. James is, is beginning with a specific example to illustrate this larger truth. And that is that those who teach are those who are employed in making a living by using words. And these, these teachers, they have a lot of influence, a lot of power, a lot of respect, a lot of authority. 
And, and they carry that with them when they teach or preach God's word. And therefore, James says, church, look, look at those people to get a good idea of how serious speech is because they will receive a greater judgment. Now, James has done a really good job at listening to his half-brother, Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, these words that pierce us, if we are honest. Jesus said this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Now, church, that is a serious statement. And to be honest, just to be personal here, this was a very hard sermon to prepare. Because I see how often I sin with my tongue. And if, if any of us are honest with ourselves and we hear that every careless word that we speak will have to be given account for, well, that, that's sober. And so James says that if you teach, if you want to be a person who has authority, good. But understand what you're getting yourself into. And he says to, to all of us, look, look to those people and understand how much your words matter. And that's why he says next in verse 2, right there in the text, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Now, let me be clear what James is not saying here. James is not saying that if you can control your words, that somehow you'd be sinless. It's not sinless perfection that James talks about here. This word perfect is better translated mature, complete, whole, or, or integrated. And James is, is concerned and he desires that, that we all would grow into maturity, into wholeness, into Christ-likeness, that our lives be centered on God and the gospel, and that our faith be genuine. And so what he's saying is that if you can control your words, that is one way to see if you are growing in grace, in maturity, and in Christ-likeness. And having self-control over what we say is hard. And it also involves two things. First, the ability to restrain the tongue in silence. But it also means the ability to control it in gracious speech. Speech seasoned with salt when that is required. And when a hard thing is to be spoken speaking it with clear, courageous humility. So, so speech and silence, appropriately expressed, are together a mark of maturity. Now, can you think of times when you should have been quiet and you weren't? How about times when you needed to speak up and then you didn't? Or if you did speak up, you did it in a way that was not very helpful. Well, this is, this is difficult stuff here. Now look again at the text and notice what James said at the beginning of verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. And all I want you to do for now is, is just note it, and we're going to come back to that point towards the end. But what you find here so far in our text is this tension. If you are able to, to do this, control your words, you're maturing, you're whole, you're perfect in James' sense, and yet we all stumble in many ways. 
So here's what I would ask. Can you identify with James? He's, he's holding out this ideal. Here is what maturity looks like, church. And isn't that what we desire? And yet so many of us live in the we all stumble in many ways section. We can't control our speech. We can't bridle our tongues. And I'm willing to bet when you lay your head at night, if you're anything like me, what you sometimes feel is regret about what you've said throughout the day. We all wish we could get a mulligan and be able to take back a lot of the things that we've said. And then that leads us to the power of words. That's point number two. That's where James goes in verse three. He gives us vivid images to make a point. He says in verse three, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And then skip with me to the back half of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And James uses these images to, to teach us the principle that you find at the beginning of verse 5, which says this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So horses and bits, ships and rudders, a small tiny spark and a whole forest fire. Now, this imagery hits close to home. We don't have to think too far back to remember what the Archie Creek fire did to our community and the destruction that it brought. Simply drive up Highway 138 and you will see. But the point is that there is extraordinary power and influence concentrated in one small object. That's the principle. What seems too insignificant has massive consequences. Now, the book of James has been called the New Testament book of Proverbs. And Proverbs has lots to say about our words. But just on this point, I mentioned Proverbs 18.21 a little earlier, which says this, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. There was a movie a while back called The Blind Side. And this is, uh, the movie is a true story about the Tui family who adopted a young teenager, Michael Orr, out of a life of poverty and abuse and almost certain death. And Michael was this young man who went on to become an offensive lineman at Ole Miss and then went on to play uh, in the NFL for the Baltimore Ravens. Well, Sean Tui, who was the dad in the family, told a story one time where he said, two words changed my family's life forever. When his wife, Leanne, saw Michael Orr walking down the road on that November night, she said two words. She said, turn around. And those two words made the difference between life and death for somebody. So again, death and life are in the power of the tongue because there is extraordinary power and influence concentrated in one small object. Then back in our text, notice. Notice the strong language that James uses to keep describing our speech and its power. Look at verse 5. Our tongues 
boast. Verse 6, they are a world of unrighteousness. Verse 6, again, they are a fire set on by hell. Verse 7, they stain our whole body. Verse 8, they are full of deadly poison and are a restless evil. I recently read a blog that said that if you want to understand the mind of an addict, try going on a diet. And because I love food, and I have zero self-control when it comes to anything sweet, that sentence makes perfect sense to me. But let's add this to the end of that sentence. If you want to understand the mind of an addict, try to control your tongue. Because what James is saying is, the power in our words is so much greater than what we usually think about. The tongue is small, but its power, both for good and for bad, is out of proportion for its size. Try it. Try to speak just kind words for one day, and you'll see the power that words have. And you'll see how much of our speech is not what it should be. And that's what addiction is all about. It's, it's wanting to change and not being able to. And that will show up in all of our lives when we try to bridle our tongues and when we try to control and watch what we say. And then too, to top things off, James gives us the source of our sinful, evil speech. And it could not be stronger. Look at the end of verse 6. Evil speech or sinful speech is set on fire by hell. And James is being very serious with us right now. He's saying, if you want to see the source of that little white lie, that harsh word you spoke to your spouse or to your kids, that the gossip that we engaged in about that guy or that girl, if you want to see the source of that, yes, it's your sinful, wicked heart and mind, but it goes even deeper than that. Because when you go back to the problem of sin, which shows up in our words, it goes all the way back to words that were spoken at the very beginning of time that came from the pit of hell itself. In a sense, it was words that brought about the fall of man in Genesis 3. Now, yes, I understand that it was all part of God's sovereign plan, but Satan used words to deceive our first parents. And so words are the source of our misery, therefore, in our first parents listening to those words. And now as, as sinful people, we, we find it so hard to break away from having smoky speech with the very aroma of hell itself on them. But another way, demonic power does not look like what we think it does. It's not about spinning heads and crazy voices. It's about everyday speech that kills, that wounds, that leaves scars. And James says, yes, that's what Satan does. He has been a murderer from the very beginning. He kills, and one of the ways he kills is through our speech. And James could not be stronger or clearer. He says our tongues can quite literally make lives hell on earth. And that leads to the third point, inconsistency. Notice how James ends in verses 9 and 10. With it, our tongue, or our words, we bless 
our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curses. And then James goes on to illustrate this truth with these other metaphors, a spring and a fig tree in verses 11 and 12. And the point of these metaphors is this, nature is consistent. Nature does what God made it to do. You know who is not consistent? We're not. And the greatest inconsistency is that we'll sit here and we will sing and we will worship and then we'll go and we will wreak havoc Monday through Saturday with our works. I'm guilty. James laments and he says in verse 10, My brothers, this ought not to be so. And if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, you hear that and you go, Yes, I want the power of the gospel to change my words. I, I lament with you, James, this ought not to be so. And so this inconsistency that James points out here sends us right back to the beginning of our text where we saw another inconsistency. James held out for us maturity, completeness, wholeness, but we all stumble in many ways. And so which one is it? God calls us to have words, speech that is free from hell, and yet we are told that we all stumble in many ways, and we see in our lives that we just can't do it. And we want to say, well, God, which one is it? You tell me to do this, but then I can't. And, and my can't is, is willful. And isn't that the hardest part? We hear this, we agree with it, and, and I'm not here to beat you up. James isn't here to beat you up. Did you notice what he said three times throughout the text? He used this phrase. He said, my brother's. He did not say, you silly, filthy, dumb, worthless, ignorant people. No, he's like, he cares. He's like, my, my brother's family. He's talking to people like himself. He's talking to people like you and me. And so we feel this tension. This, this inconsistency hits close to home. With our words, we bless and we curse. Can you imagine if I just said, well, we're done, and I sat back down? <laughs> this would be the worst sermon ever, because we're all like, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. And so this leads us to Jesus. If we want our words to change, we must recognize that the main problem is not with our words. I'm not a medical expert. I am not sure how the tongue works anatomically and how it is all connected physically, but here's what I do know. I know for a fact that the tongue is connected to the heart. It always comes back that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. It's, it's my heart that's the problem. It's your heart that's the problem. That's why Jesus said this in Matthew 12. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Again, have you ever had one of those moments when you say something and you go, gosh, I just put my foot in my mouth once again. It's like a cartoon character. You're trying to reach for those words as soon as they leave your mouth. Or more seriously, you raise your voice at your spouse, you raise your voice at your kids, 
And you stop and you go, man, why does that keep happening? Why do I keep falling into these sinful speech patterns? And it kind of feels like it would be easier to put a dog collar on a tiger drinking Red Bull than to get control of our speech. It's true. So what do we do? Well, what Jesus would call us to do, and what James would call us to do, is to take a good look at our hearts. And when we do that, what we will find is that it's our heart speech that matters more than anything we say. Now, what do I mean by heart speech? Here's the deal. Our hearts, every single day, are telling us a story. Our hearts speak to us every minute of every single day. There's this constant narrative of words flowing through our mind all day long. And the narrative of our heart is this. You deserve better. You deserve more. Nobody should take advantage of you. That person shouldn't have said that about you. You are awesome. You are the best. You are number one. How dare anyone infringe upon your work? That's how my heart speaks to me. That's how our hearts speak to us. Because as the prophet told us, our hearts are deceitful and wicked above all things. So our hearts speak to us, and they're telling us a story, and the main piece of advice that we hear today is what? Follow your heart. Listen to your heart. I don't want to be harsh, but there can possibly be no worse advice to give yourself or other people than to listen to your heart. Because our hearts can be deceived. They are so often deceived. They are so often attached to the wrong things. So what we need is not to listen more to our hearts, but to listen more to the gospel. That's what we need. We need true words to overcome our false words because our speech will never change until our hearts have a superior affection, a superior love than what sinful words, false words, hellish words gives our hearts. And this is where Jesus can help us more than we can possibly imagine. And do you want hope? You only have to put up with me for like 40-ish minutes. I've been living in this text for a couple weeks, and I am beat up. James has done a work on me, and there is a lot left to do. But there is hope, because Jesus... The Word of God lived out for us what James talks about here. How? Well, the powers of hell gathered themselves at the foot of the cross. Now, go back there with me in your mind, and behold Jesus on the cross. There hangs Jesus, who was in the beginning as the Word, and gathered at the foot of the cross are Satan's minions, speaking the very words of hell themselves to our Savior. These words were spoken towards Jesus. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Let him come down and save himself. So that's the scene. And we are there at that moment in two ways. First, we are at the foot of the cross. Billy Graham told a story once that he had a dream, and in his dream he saw the hand of the Savior on the cross, and he could not see the rest of Jesus' body, and he also saw a Roman soldier hammering away, uh, hammering away on that nail. And he was horrified, so he ran 
and tried to stop the man by grabbing him and uh, spinning him around. And when he spun him around, lo and behold, the face of the Roman soldier was his own face. The face at the foot of the cross of those shouting curses against Jesus is our face. It's my face. I've done it. We've done it in many different ways. So we are at the foot of the cross. But secondly, we are there with Jesus on the cross, as it were. We are at the cross and on the cross. Paul tells us in Galatians 2, 20, that we were crucified with Christ. By our faith and our faith alone in Christ Jesus alone, we are united with Christ. We are in union with Him, no more separation. Deuteronomy 21:23 says that cursed by God is everyone who hangs on a tree. And on the cross is where Jesus bore that curse. And that curse was not pronounced over Jesus with actual words. It was pronounced instead in the silence that Jesus heard for the first time ever when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that curse was pronounced upon the Savior in the divine silence that he heard when his Father did not answer him for the first time. Why? Why did the Father not answer? Because Jesus was representing us. He was dying for our sins. Included in our sin is our sinful speech. And the silence he endured, church, was for the purpose of knowing that we would have words of life and truth and healing spoken to us after his suffering on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We only get words of life because Jesus endured silence on our behalf. That's why the gospel is good news. That's why the gospel is good news for people like us whose words go out and cause so much damage. He bore the curse for every single one of them. And he is committed to making us, those whose speech brings heaven and not hell on earth, so much so that he is willing to die and take on that judgment that we deserve for every careless word for people like us who tomorrow are going to go out and fail again. We're going to go out and say words that hurt again. And the greatest thing about this whole thing is that Jesus is not done with you or me yet. He is at work. He will transform our lives. He will transform our speech. He will make our words instruments of righteousness and holiness to speak life into others' lives by His grace, by the power of His Spirit heard this story a little while back. Back in the day when there was no refrigerators, but instead they had these warehouses full of ice, one of the ways that they would preserve the ice was to throw sawdust on the ice and somehow it would keep the ice frozen for a longer period of time. And so this worker was there and he had this precious watch from his grandfather and while he was working stocking the ice, he somehow lost his watch. And um, he was searching frantically for it. He got help from the other workers, and they were searching and searching and searching. And this little boy was just kind of watching there from afar what was going on. Finally, the man and the worker said, let's just stop for lunch. We can't find it. And uh, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and try again. 
So they took a break, stepped outside, and uh, about two minutes later, the little kid came bebopping out of the warehouse with the watch in his hand. And they were all shocked. How did you find the watch? And the boy said, I sat in the room, I laid down in the sawdust, and when there was no movement and everything was quiet, I could hear the ticking. So I found the watch. So in the same way, we can search and search and try and try to clean up our speech, to find ways to make our speech better. But the only hope we have for our words improving, for avoiding what James talks about here, this, this judgment he speaks of, the only way our words are going to become instruments of grace is if we stop listening to other sin-filled voices in our lives and culture, stop listening to our hearts, and start listening to the one about whom Peter said, said, where else would we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. And as we listen to the words of eternal life from the word of eternal life, our speech, our words, and our lives, and the lives of those whom we so often wound with our speech, will change. So the most important single aid to my ability to use my words for the glory of God is allowing the Word of God to dwell in me so richly that I cannot speak with any other accent. And when I do, the result will be, according to Colossians 3:16 and 17, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and thankfulness and singing in word or deed, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus by giving thanks to God the Father. And so as, as our heart hears with open ears the word of God again and again and again, it is renewed and it begins to produce a transformed tongue and a transformed life. And so the principle is this, what comes out of our mouths is more and more determined by what has come out of the mouth of God. The sanctification of the tongue is a work in us that is driven by the Word of God coming to us as we hear it and indwelling it as we receive it. This whole thing is empowered by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And church, Jesus is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And first, I, I acknowledge that I, I haven't arrived. I am right there with James. I long for maturity. I long for growth. I long for more Christ-likeness. But I stumble in many ways. So what do I do? The only thing I can think about is we, we all run to Christ. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your son who lived a life that we could not live and who died the death that we deserved and who, in our place, conquered death, sin, and the grave. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin. And more than that, thank you for giving us your spirit to empower us to make us more like you, to live lives for the glory of God. We need that power. We need you, God. Help us this week to be attuned to your words, God. 
And as your word is received in our hearts and is indwelled in our soul, transform your people. And help us to be a people who are instruments of grace wherever we go. Help us to be a people whose words bring life and encouragement and mercy and grace and peace and wisdom and perspective. Help us to do this, God, for your glory, for the good of others, for the advancement of the gospel. So this morning, the best way that we can respond to our this text is to use our words to worship you. So we do that this morning. Jesus' name. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.